Well, as I said, we've, um, we've got Marilyn Dolling with us this morning. Would you put your hands together for Marilyn, please? Good. And um, look, we are wrapping up. We're in the sixth week of a, val- a series about our church values, and we're finishing off with Grow People. Uh, our senior pastor, Matt, spoke about this last week, and I encourage you, if you've missed any of the messages, you can go back and listen to that on podcast. Uh, it's also on YouTube. And so, uh, yeah, take, it, take advantage of that. Um, Matt, I feel like Matt has been going to the deep end of the pool, as Matt often does. And so the idea of sharing stories and hearing stories is that we're like, oh, that is what this looks like. So when we open scripture and, you know, sometimes we read it and go like, oh, that happened then. Maybe it doesn't happen now. But we're, what we're wanting to do, the heart, is that we go, oh, that's what it looks like. And that God has called each of us to play a part in his kingdom where we get the opportunity, like it says here, to empower people and to see them come into God's calling and purpose for their lives. I think often we underestimate our own part that we play. We would look to other people and go, man, they are so good at that. I can see them doing like, and this person's doing that. Sometimes I think naturally we just go like, oh man, do I'm not sure I have as much to offer as anyone else. And so, um, yeah, we're going to chat this morning and um, I'd invite you like, um, as Marilyn shares, you know, um, she's going to share some stories which are from her own life, but um, encourage you to go like, you know, God, what, what are the experiences that God has, um, that you've been through that um, have been formative to you? What, what are the pe- who are the people that are around you that you have influence with in your life? Because um, I think there'll be some similarities about what God wants to do. So we might, we might dive in. Um, now, Marilyn and I caught up during the week. Now, you, you can look at them. Don't have to feel like you've got to look at me. Um, and because uh, Marilyn shared at our Barrow campus a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, you beauty, that was so good. We'll just do the same thing. And then when, when we got together and chatted, we didn't talk about any of that stuff at all. Um, so we're doing something different. And I suspect there may be a chance that we may not even do today what we talked about. But we'll see how we go anyway. Uh, you shared at Barrow a few weeks ago. Um, and your hair is looking lovely today. Tell us about what your hairdresser said during the week. <laughs> I, um, we've, I live at Abervale Village out in Grovedale, and um, the hairdresser, well, I don't actually go to her, but we, we always have contact, and I believe she's got a granddaughter at, out at Barrow. Anyway, she came, I was up at the centre the other day, and she came running out with a phone in her hand, and she said, guess what, guess what? She said, I've got a video of you. And I thought, she's got a video of me. She said, yes, she said, and when everyone comes into the salon now, she said, I sit it up in front of them and they watch you while they're having their hair done. (laughs) Now, this is a lady who I suggested she might like to come to church with us and no, no, not interested, that's not for me. But here she is watching that video and showing everyone at the village. So I'm waiting on the flak for that this next week now. It's good, it's great. Now, if you could take us back to your childhood, and um, many people will be familiar with um, the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Your life was a little bit like that with a uh, home life. Tell us a bit about that. It sure was. My family had come down from up in, around the Wimmera back before the, oh, well, in the 30s, but during the first world, Second World War, um, I lived in a little house right down the Geelong Railway Station because my grandfather and great-grandfather had worked on the railways. At that stage in that little house, there were my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my mum and me and my auntie and my uncle if he was home from camp while my dad was still overseas. But in the backyard, we had um, tents because a lot of the soldiers that were coming from up the country 
needed to have somewhere to stay before they went on the train, wherever they were going, or if they came home. And so they stayed in the tents in the backyard. And we never knew who was going to be there for meals. We didn't have much money or much food, but everything was shared. And look, they were such rich times, yeah. It's good. And you're telling me that, you know, you grew up in a, a going along to the Methodist church and, and dad with his Bible and um, saying grace at meals. But there was a very tangible expression of God's love when you never shared a bir- you never had a birthday by yourself, did no. you? Tell us a bit about that. I think one of those, the reasons I didn't was that my dad's sister died in childbirth when she, when she was having one of her children. And the two boys had had to go into the orphanage. The baby was, um, foster, was adopted out, but Dad adopted the, the two-year-old daughter to save her from going to the orphanage. But he was always so connected. He became a life governor of Bethany Baby's Home and all sorts of stuff. But he got it into us that these people didn't need to be there. They needed to be loved. And it broke his heart that the boys had to go into the orphanage. So every birthday he would bring a little... We often had them for other meals too, but for my birthday he'd invite one of the little girls from the orphanage to come. And it was me giving her her birthday, something that she would have missed out. That's incredible. And life changed for you um, February 24th, 1959. Mm -hmm. You share with people a little bit about that. That was a bit of a shock to our street because we lived in West Geelong, just near the Sparrow Park. And over the road we had a returned missionary and her sister, Miss Houghton and Mrs Pennycook. And she hired a bus to take the neighbours up to Billy Graham. And quite a few of those neighbours, including me, gave our hearts to the Lord at that crusade. But when we got home, because most of us in that street were either going to the Methodist church was very social, we never heard the gospel. Um, The Baptists up the road were the um, radicals and you don't go there, you protect your kids from that. So Miss Houghton decided when we came back, she knew she had to do something with all these people who'd come to the Lord. So she started running Bible studies, she started discipling us. None of us knew how to pray because if we had to do a prayer at church, we'd go for a book, open it up and find something we thought that was suitable. That was our prayer or saying grace. So Miss Houghton took us night after night, week after week for quite a long time and then she started feeding us. We'd go up to um, Mano at, at night time. So that was, you know, mum was very worried I'd become a missionary because I'd, I was so radical. So radical. And I love, like, that's a, that's a great time with, you know, as we talk about growing people, that neighbour did that for you, sowed into your life at an early age when there was other people around you that didn't kind of see it that way. But this, like you were saying, that this, this lady, these people taught you how to pray and, and read scripture and really own your own faith. And mm-hmm. would you share a little bit about there was a pastor at another church that maybe didn't see eye to eye Oh, this was that. the minister at our Methodist church. Oh, you said it, not me. <laughs> I won't say who it was. <laughs> no, when I, when I went teaching, I was teaching up in Melbourne and living over the road from the Regent Baptist Church. And baptisms was something that I was didn't really know a lot about. I'd been told I'd been baptised as an infant. But I started realising that this is something I really wanted to do. So I knew I'd have a bit of opposition. So I started looking to see why I didn't need to be baptised. And all I got was all the reasons, all the more reasons why I should. 
So I told mum and dad when I went home one weekend that I was going to be baptised and invited them to come up. Next thing I know, I'm getting a letter in the mail from our minister, five pages of why I shouldn't be, and I couldn't find the box, John. I've got it packed when I moved. But mum and dad tried to forbid me to do it, but I just said, no, this is something I've got to do. And they weren't going to come, but they did turn up, which was something I was thrilled about, but yes. I love that. And that has turned into a lifelong journey of, of knowing Jesus and being led by the Holy Spirit. And when we were chatting the other day, you, you shared about how you got a mum of four girls and how um, varying experiences there, you know, they've own, all chosen their own path. And you, your throwaway line to me was like, you know, amongst the highs, there's also moments where you feel like you've failed as a mum. And, you know, quite a vulnerable statement. I think, like I said earlier, we can all feel like we haven't, um, that other people are achieving and we're not. You know, uh, what would your encouragement be to people who are here today and might feel that, maybe about their own parenting even? Yeah, well, look, we'd been church planters and we'd been you know, pretty strong in our faith and we wanted the, we'd given our kids to the Lord. We wanted for them, we wanted them to grow up knowing him. And with the four daughters... The eldest one, because of some misunderstandings with some Christians and the way that was handled, ran away. She came home pregnant. The second daughter was affected by the elder one and got very angry and very very disturbed. Our third daughter, who is still in, she's now in full-time ministry, which is just awesome. And the, the youngest one was intellectually challenged and... She's had a life of, she got into drugs, all sorts of things, ended up in jail, became to know the Lord in jail. But I said to our third daughter, I said, Chris, what did I do wrong? I just felt I'd look around at other families and all their families would be coming to church and they'd be getting involved in ministry and doing all sorts of things. And she said, Mum, you didn't. You didn't do anything different. She said, you brought us up to love the Lord, live, in, live according to him, but... They chose to go their own way and for a long time, you wear masks. I've been in so many churches over the years where you don't know the other people. You think you're the only one because no one talks about it. It's a stigma that you try and push down and hide. People even say to you, why don't you get your own life together without trying to change anyone else, particularly when you're sharing your faith? And I always felt they saw me as a failure too. You know, second rate. And I really wasn't who I said I was. And it wasn't until we got to Cloverdale several years ago that suddenly some of us in the ladies' group started sharing that we had the, they had the same problems. And there ended up with 12 of us out there. Some with kids with, that were addicts for drugs, others with alcohol, other family things that that were just heartbreaking. And actually Sarah Jacoby gathered us together. And on a Monday night, she called it oh, the Joseph Group, I think she gave us a name like that. But we met and we shared and we cried and we prayed. And we saw God start to do miracles. But I think the biggest thing of all was we began to be set free from that. Because wearing that mask... not not wanting anyone to know you felt so vulnerable, so broken. I taught in a Christian school and I'd go quite often and think, 
I'm teaching these kids, but if they knew, if the parents knew about my kids, what would they say? And all I know is that God loves them. He's got a plan for them, and sometimes they've got to reach rock bottom before he can really come into into their presence and they can know his power. I discovered that with the last daughter. So I just want to say if any of you have things in your life that you feel you failed, particularly with your families or your marriage or whatever, you haven't failed. That's God wants us. We've got to be sinners and we've got to have a need before he can step in. So I'd just like to encourage you with that. Give it to God. It's your greatest need, but he'll never fail you with that. He'll answer. Mightn't be in our time or in our way. I tried to manipulate him for years to do it. Come on, God, I want it now. You've got to do it now. But it's not his way. And I love that's the call of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus and you know Jesus never wrote anyone off. Like you know, oh, here's the high flyer or the person who's doing it tough. It's like this is what we talk about when we're saying call people that no one is beyond the reach of God. You know, Scripture says at one time or another we were all sinners. Like we were all separated from God because of our own dysfunction and sinfulness. And there's no us and them. There's just us. Like us that need saving and are in need of God's grace. And you said the other day this amazing moment where, and I've had this too. I went to, um, I got invited to speak at a church. And about three minutes before the service, they said, now are you right with the songs? And I said, yeah, I know those songs. I'll sing along. And they're like, no, leading them. And um, which... That's not a win for anyone. You had the reverse where you were leading the worship, but the speaker didn't show up. Will you share people a bit about that where you ended up running the whole thing? Yes, as I said, with my, fa- with my family, my dad and mum, churchgoers, church leaders, but didn't know the Lord. And it broke my heart not being able to get through to them. And mum and, mum and dad, when dad died, mum met up in, in, Ash, um, in Ash Road in the Leopold Lodge. And every, once a month, they used to go down to church by the bay for a lovely morning tea. And they used to fight to get on the bus to get down there. And um, Jenny Ellingworth was, Jenny and Dom were down there. And I, occasionally they'd ask me to go down and do the worship and, and play, play the songs for them. And mum loved that when I went. But anyway, one morning we fronted up and I sat down with mum and Jenny came over to me. She said, got a problem, Marilyn? The speaker hasn't arrived she said, you're playing the music. She said, you might as well do the whole lot. And I thought, okay, Lord, no preparation for this. And I looked around this room. Oh, the, the, the room was full, all sitting there waiting to hear. And I said, Lord, you've just got to give me what to say. And as I looked, my heart started breaking because I looked at mum and I thought, you've been coming here, you've been going to church, but you don't know the Lord. You think you're a Christian, a Christian goes to church, but you don't know him. There's nothing, it's not a personal relationship. And as I started looking around, I realised the more of those people I knew, that that was their story. So the Lord gave me a real courage that morning to speak about what it is to have a personal relationship with the Lord and how you had to go about it and what it meant. I said, each one of you are getting older. And are you going to go and, and die without knowing him, not knowing where you're going, or think you do? So I actually shared the gospel that morning, and at the end, I said, okay, if anyone would like to give their heart to the Lord and start that new relationship, please put up your hand. And my mum's was the first one to go up. And Jenny was able to go straight over with her and lead her to the Lord. 
No, at 92, she gave her heart to the Lord. And Dad on his deathbed, I didn't know. And I sat there praying. And we were playing How Great Thou Art. And I got up to the last verse, When Christ shall come with a shout of acclamation and take me home. Dad opened his eyes and looked at me. He said, take me home, Lord. On his deathbed at 96. So don't give up praying. You know, yeah. That's amazing. You know, don't don't give up praying and don't underestimate. You know that God has put us, given us our families and the people that we have influence the the influence to speak into their life in meaningful ways for a reason. You know, Absolutely. I think sometimes we can in a um, social internet saturated culture and where our value is based on how big a crowd or how many people follow us. That God has said that His kingdom would grow one and two people at a time, and often He uses that, and that story illustrates that with the people that we know best and may that happen for each and every one of us that we would see family members come to know Christ because of the way that we step out in courage you know fast forward a little bit and um, 1997 you get a cancer diagnosis and there's a whole bunch of family stuff going along there at the same time where your your dad and sister pass away while you're journeying through that and um, in between those funerals your your husband Roger is diagnosed with with cancer as well and uh, you know would you would you be able to speak to just the point that you ended up through that journey and you ended up in a situation where you never thought you would end up? For sure. Yes, I'd reached the peak of my career. I'd gone down to Covenant College as head of primary and I was loving it, just loving. We'd prayed about getting a job in Geelong for so many years and we'd got there. And we bought a place out at Anarchy and we were doing a ministry out there. But I got, in 1997, I was diagnosed with bowel cancer and... During that time, I nearly died. In one of my surgeries, I had a respiratory arrest, which left me totally and permanently dis- disabled, I was told. I had to learn to go out to McCalla for memory clinic. I had to learn to drive. I had to learn to get my thoughts together again. And I really thought I'd reached the end of everything. But during that time, um, my dad and my sister, dad was elderly, but he also got cancer. My sister was dying of cancer and we were supposed to be looking after mum and we'd bought a house next door to her place so we could be close to, to care for her and my dad died on the Sunday, my, my sister died on the Monday. At the thir- on the Thursday at dad's funeral I looked at my husband and I thought, you've got cancer, he looks shocking. And I thought, Marilyn, you've been amongst it too much. And I put it aside. But on Monday morning, my sister's funeral was to be the Tuesday. Roger came out and he said to me, will you drive me into the hospital today? And I looked at him. I said, well, he said, I've, I've got to go and have some tests done. And we got in there and they said to me, they, we were admitting him in, into the oncology, and to Bursley 6. And I said, but that's the oncology ward. And they said, yes, his um, blood levels, his platelets were one that morning. (coughs) Pardon me. And they said, if he starts bleeding, just yell. And that that just rocked my boat so much. The bottom fell out of my world that morning. So I I wasn't even driving at that stage. So I'm stuck in town. Mum is supposed to be looking after her. So the Leukaemia Foundation found us a a place just around from the hospital where we could stay and I could get a taxi backwards and forwards to mum. But we had to put her in, a, in the home at that stage. So I spent most of my day 
in the wards, talking to people, talking to him. I've got Rob Standen, Bob Standen, who was Shirley, used to come here. Bob was in the same ward as Roger and we developed a friendship there. But I also got to know the people at the hospital, a lot of the nurses, because I'm a people person. And very soon made friends with the director of nursing, Lucy Kahidi. And at that stage, the government were bringing in some new policy things. Do you mind if I just have a mouthful? Thanks, Jono. They were bringing in a whole lot of changes in government policy and they were doing a new cancer action plan right across Australia. Now, back when I was teaching, at one stage I'd done a postgrad um, in pastoral care, bereavement counselling and also in policy development and curriculum development. And I thought, you know, you just do it to get extra qualifications. The policy part particularly. Anyway... They said they, they were wanting to get a consumer for the hospital, someone who could tell them what the patients thought, what the families thought. And I, they said, would you do it? And I thought, well, I'm sitting around the hospital. Yes, I could do that. Little did I know that that role was going to sort of take on where I was working with Cancer Council, Cancer Australia, start working with the Department of Health, doing advocacy, advising them on policy, Mixing with all the ministers and the doctors and the professors and being flown up to Melbourne, um, Sydney University to talk to them about it. And it blew me away because <laughs> here I was retired at permanently disabled and I'm doing all this stuff. And anyway, one of the things looking at the cancer policy was they were looking at all the, the things that need attention, all the care needs. And, you know, there wasn't anything about spiritual care. I received no spiritual care. My husband received no spiritual care. Some of the chaplains, you had to ask for them to come in if you had a denomination where you had one. If you had a minister, they could invite, be invited in. So I started forming policy about spiritual needs, what that looked at for a cancer patient or even other patients with other conditions. And finally, after several drafts, we met up in Melbourne one day for the final draft to be okayed and sent off to the government. And as I looked, reread that policy the week before, spiritual, value, spiritual needs was a sentence, a little dot point amongst the care needs. And Lord, I said, Lord, they just can't get away with this. You know, they've just put it in so it's not really going to be acknowledged. And at that last meeting, they, were, they asked me would I address my views about... the what I thought about the document. And I got up and I, I looked around and I challenged them. Now, I hate confrontation, but the Lord gave me such a boldness that morning to say if anyone agrees with... And I went through the spiritual values that I thought were important. If everyone, anyone agrees with me, could they stand up and blow me down? All these important people are standing up and supporting me. So that now in the, the policy, well, it was in the last one, I've retired from that now, but spiritual values were one of the, uh, spiritual needs were listed as one of the core values of the care. 
I love that. And it's changed things for a whole lot of people around their spiritual care and, and care in um, well, undergoing tr- cancer treatment. And we were talking about the book of Esther the other day, which is in the Bible where there's this moment where, you know, a bit like that story, there's this young woman who ends up in circumstance where she's surrounded by all the influential people that she never even imagined. And there's this great line in Esther from Esther 4.14 where her uncle who had adopted her says, you know, well, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. That in all this amazing seemingly circumstance that God had orchestrated this for such a time that you would have influence in that spot. And I love that, that God calls us into something even when we have largely at times maybe no idea what God is doing. But I wouldn't have known the values that were needed if I hadn't have had to go through the, all the things that I needed and didn't the care I didn't receive. So you turned that right upside down. That's great. If we can fast forward for just one final question, which is, you know, and, and chatting with you, you get the sense of Marilyn that her um, heart throughout her life has been, you know, to, to be able to share the gospel and in different ways. And um, would you share us a bit about um, Max, okay. please? Living out at Abbeville, when you go into a retirement home, when you get reach that stage of life, when you're actually old, no one prepares you for it. They prepare you to be a teenager. They prepare you for young adults. They prepare you for having a family, menopause, all sorts of stuff, leaving work. But no one prepares you for becoming old. And it's not becoming old in a family situation. It's when suddenly you've got a loss or some, suddenly you can't cope at home. And you've either got to put your partner in care or you've got to go into care yourself. You've got to move out of your home. Sometimes it's suddenly, regularly it's suddenly. And quite often, particularly since COVID, you do it alone. And you don't have family there to, to support you. And you don't really want to be there, but you know sometimes you have to. I was just thankful that Roger and I had actually talked about what, we might, what I might have to do. And Abbeville was a place that we'd... we'd sort of talked about. And my next door neighbour, um, Max, is um, they have no children. They've got no family left. No brothers, sisters, anything. And he's, he's dying, a slow death. He's had cancer. He's got all other medical problems. His wife is unwell. They used, I used to play church tennis with them years ago. I know they used to go to church. They haven't had anything since. They don't want to talk to a minister. They don't want to have any religion part of it. And yet they asked me to go and pray with him. They asked me to go and sit with him. The other day I was called in, he was lying on his bed with a handkerchief over his face saying, God, kill me, God, kill me, God, kill me. And I said, Max, he's not going to do that. He doesn't kill. I said, he's a God of love and mercy. I said, all you have to do is just ask him to be with you and he'll comfort you through. I don't need comfort. (laughs) And anyway, talking to him, praying silently, you have to pray silently with him. I've given him a little clutching cross and talk to him and he'll listen. But now he's, every time he's able to get out, he's wandering into my place. He has dementia, but he has his lucid moments. The other day he came and he said, you should be a minister, you're in the wrong job. I said, but you wouldn't see me if I was a minister, would you? He said, oh. He said, but you'll listen and you'll keep praying, won't you? And I said, yes, I'll keep praying, Max. 
But this, there's so many people. It just happens he's next door. But I look around the village and we have devotions. A lot of them come to devotions, but they come because it's a social, it's a, it's a company thing to do. So if you're younger, look, look at your elderly parents, look at your family. Quite often they're, they're not even letting on how they feel. And we get so busy in the modern world with our families and this and that and TV and sport and everything. And often you don't, you don't, I know my kids, I don't, there's one that understands me. But the others, I got a message the other day saying, Mum, you keep ringing. She'd rung me in the middle of the day and woken me up. And I rang back to see what she wanted. And I rang her three times and she told me, Mum, you just keep ringing over and over and over again. You make me angry. Because I was interrupting her busy life. But I think we get lost in this modern world where there's a lot of old ones in your family around about you who, who are just like, a, even, how are you? Okay? And just to acknowledge you, yeah. That's right. And I think that's a great place to wrap up on because, you know, as, as a church, as we talk about one of our values being grow people, that we see people come into God's purpose and calling for their life that, you know, at the forefront would, of our mind would not only be that God has saved us by his grace through Jesus Christ, but that we wouldn't be in such a hurry that we miss out on the maxes yeah. that are in our life. You know, that Jesus' love is not just for us. We are not here for ourselves as a church. We are here for people who haven't encountered the love of God yet. You know, and so I'd love, in a moment we're going to sing, but would you, um, would you pray for us as we close as a congregation? And I think especially maybe, you know, uh, maybe there's people in your life that come to, have come to mind as Marilyn's been speaking or now as we're chatting, you know, you can just hold them up to God in your heart and say, God, come and have your way. But love it if you would pray with us and then we're going to sing and love to. finish in communion together. Thanks, John. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you're such a God of love and grace and mercy. And Lord, I thank you that um, even before time you've had a plan for each of our lives. And Lord, we haven't always been open to those plans. Sometimes we've resisted. Sometimes we've just gone our own way. But Lord, sometimes we also fear the unknown. We don't know how we're going to cope with different, <coughs> with different things that you put in front of us, with challenges that we have with our families or with work or with where we're going to live or how we're going to afford things. But, Lord, I want to thank you that you're a God of provision. Lord, that sometimes we need to have you come and fill that empty space. But first of all, Lord, we've got to get rid of the junk that's there that's cluttering up our lives. So, Father, I just ask that you'll be with each person, Lord, if they have issues with their health. Father, that you will heal them, that you'll bring healing into their bodies, healing into their minds, healing into their spirits, Father. And, Father, that they may know without a doubt that you do understand, you do heal, but sometimes it's not in the way we expect and Father, where there are family needs, Father, I just thank you that you love the children. You love the adults. You love every one of them. And Lord, you just want them to come and walk with you. So Lord, give us wisdom of what to say and not what not to say. And let, people, let our families see you in our lives. 
that we'll be that example. And if there are others around us that don't know you, that you'll show us how to grow them too. Lord, that you'll help us to be encouragers. That you'll watch our, and guard our words. But Lord, also that you'll give us a heart to pray for them even more. And Father, I just thank you for the joy that it is of being able to come here and to be in your presence. And Lord, that we can take that presence with us when we go out. But right now, Lord, I want to pray too for Deb Bateman's family. Lord, some of us have been praying for her for the whole time she's been sick, but especially this last week, Lord. And Lord, I know some of the family and friends are gathered there with her this morning. Lord, I just ask that you'll bring comfort to them, that you'll bring peace. And Lord, for those that are struggling, that you'll just walk right beside them with that. So bring blessing on this church family, Father. May your love and your purpose just grow here. And that they may become a people that delight in this community. And I pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Marilyn.